Hello there, and welcome to the SLP Now podcast, where we share practical therapy tips and ideas for busy speech-language pathologists. Grab your favorite beverage and sit back as we dive into this week's episode. Hey there, it's Marisha, and welcome to the SLP Now podcast. This month, we are diving into all things data collection. So we'll start off by talking about collecting probe data and why we would even want to do that. And then we'll talk about organizing the probes, strategies to collect data in groups, and then how to document therapy data. So without further ado, let's get started with this week's topic. Let's chat about how to collect probe data and why we would even want to do that. If you want to check out any of the resources that I mentioned throughout the podcast, you can find the show notes at slpnow.com slash 110. And that's slpnow.com slash 110. And that'll be a great place to keep track of all the different resources. But anyway, when it comes to probe data, I think this is an incredibly powerful strategy because we need that data to drive our therapy. We are making decisions using external evidence, but also internal evidence and what we're seeing in the therapy room. And probe data is just a really nice way to collect that. So I like to collect that data first thing when students come in. So of course, we'll check in and see how they're doing, make sure they're ready to learn and all of that. But once we're checked in and good to go, they know that the first thing we're going to do is a quick probe. It just takes a couple minutes and we run through one goal per student. So it'll be like five to 10 stimulus items. But the main strategies here, do it first thing collect data on one goal per student. And in terms of why I do it this way, it's a pretty simple process. It also sets me and the student up for success in the session. So let's say that I'm working with a student and they achieve 0% accuracy on the probe. That is a sign to me that I need to step back and definitely not dive into practice. I need to spend some quality time teaching the skill. And this is important because then I know exactly where they're at, how they're coming into the session, how they're doing independently, because my goal is for them to use these skills independently in the future so that doing it right at the beginning of the session helps me see exactly where they're at without any support, without any extra reminders other than being in the speech room. It's not perfect, but it's the best we can do. So for the student who achieves that 0% accuracy, if I step back and teach, then I know exactly where they're coming in. And it also reduces their frustration. If I were to just jump into a literacy-based therapy unit and have them try to use the skill in context, they would be so frustrated. And when students are frustrated, they shut down, they might like exhibit behavior and it's just not a great place to be in. And we're also not in like their proximal zone of development and we're not meeting them where they're at. We're just kind of trying to drag them along to where we want them to be. 
But by taking that data, seeing it, evaluating it, and making out a plan, we can reduce that frustration and set them up for success. And then these are just kind of rough figures. You can use your clinical judgment in terms of which percentage you use. But if a student achieves like 20 to 60% accuracy, I would look at that as an emerging skill. So that can be something that we celebrate like, yay, they were at 0% accuracy for the last three weeks. We did some great teaching and now they're at 40. That's awesome. So that means that's emerging. And we can use, again, our clinical judgment to decide how much time do we spend teaching? Like how much do we want to refresh? How quickly are we going to jump into embedded practice? Like, what does that look like? But in that zone, I might do like a little bit of teaching, do a quick refresher, maybe do like a structured drill, or maybe if they're at the higher end or if the quick teaching review goes really well, maybe we can just jump into embedded practice. So that's kind of like that middle zone where we use more of our clinical judgment. But then if a student is at 80 or 100% accuracy, then we definitely want to give them the opportunity to practice in context and really step things up. If we're just sticking to a rigid routine where every time we teach the skill, if a student is at 80 or 100% accuracy, they're going to get bored because they know this skill. They have seen it probably a million times already. And so by focusing too much on the teaching, We're going to lose that student and then they also may start exhibiting different behaviors and all of that. So at this end, if they're scoring that higher accuracy, I, again, want to provide them an opportunity to practice in context that'll keep them engaged. It's in their zone of proximal development. They're ready for that. So that's what we've got in terms of very quick explanation of how I structure my probe data collection and why. Join us next week for more of the nitty gritty on how to actually organize that process, how to gather your probes, how to know which goals you're going to collect data on and how to organize it so that it's like a nice seamless process. So That's a wrap for today and we'll see you next time. And then again, if you want to check out the show notes with a quick recap, I also have like a little blog post on data collection. You can find that at slpnow.com slash 110. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to the SLP Now podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please share with your SLP friends and don't forget to subscribe to the podcast to get the latest episodes sent directly to you. See you next time. Thank you.